Dangerous Twisted Mystery Podcast. Less cozy, more ugly. Warping listeners' minds since 2022. Music by Dangerous. Narrated by Twisted. Chapter 10. Snap, crackle, pop. Snap, crackle. Two shots and Chess put the gun down on the varnished wood counter. Her target hung 15 meters away, a fair test for the accuracy of the nickel SIG-226 that she was using. It was an ugly weapon, but one of the most respected utility handguns in the business. All that her father cared about was that it got the job done. She heard her father alternating hands and shooting at a target far down range. When the noise subsided, he poked his head around the divider. You only shot twice, he said, removing his gloves with his teeth. You look like you're snarling when you do that. She flipped her hair and pushed the button that reeled her target in. Anyway, my man is down, and yours is still ready to parte. I've taken two shots and made it home for dinner. Chess frowned. She couldn't help herself. She knew that her reaction fed her father's obsessive overprotectivity. Was that redundant? She wasn't sure, but when it came to her father's health, playing it cool wasn't an option. He was all she had. Legacy leaned around and slapped a button that caused Chess's target to approach zipping down the cable and stopping less than a meter away. Two holes, left and right knees. Very funny, he observed. The hole in the knee was off-center. What happened here? Chess used the gun as a pointer. If my guy was an amateur, he went down on the first shot to the left knee. If he's a professional, he's wearing flexible armor, so I clipped the tendons behind the knee with the second shot. Very effective and extremely painful. He's probably looking for some extra strength Advil right now. She reached around and pushed her father's button. Now with your guy, he's wearing Kevlar, so the center mass of nine bullets only slows him down. The target stopped right in front of Legacy. Now he's ready to engage you in hand-to-hand, but you're out of ammunition. With a wry smile and a flick of the wrist, a knife appeared from the inner pocket of Legacy's vest. Never taking his eyes off Chess, He made two surgical thrusts into the paper target. He's dead now, and I bet he wishes he'd stayed down when he took the bullets to the chest. Chess smiled, looking at the two knife entry points. The ear angled downward to the brainstem, and the throat clipping the innominate vein and the aorta. There would be blood coming and going, and no oxygen in the brain to process it. She proudly took her father's warm hand and led him away from the range, not once thinking that she had a very small, Very strange family. Chapter 11. Night Visitor. A click outside the door and Laura stopped all motion, straining to listen. There it was again. They were coming for her. Laura noticed earlier that there were two doors that were opened before anyone entered the room. An outer security door of some sort. It gave her warning that the company was on its way. She went limp. She heard the second door open but not a sound from Blue approaching before his arms were wrapped around her, picking her up. We don't want you laying cold on that floor, dear. Laura hadn't noticed any change in the ambient light of the room as he'd entered. She concluded that it must be nighttime. All she needed was ten more minutes alone. Blue hadn't checked her restraints, and he headed for the door. Laura breathed a sigh of relief. To the predator, that was nectar. Blue turned at the door to enjoy one last look at the captive. He was about to leave when he stopped. 
his eyes focusing on where Laura had lain. There was no way he could see the sharp splinter of imperfection on the floor between them, but Laura knew that was exactly what he had done. She could see inside his brain, connections clicking like tumblers on a lock. For a moment, his expression seemed locked in a battle between anger and pleasure. Then he relaxed, deciding on a natural expression that was much more ominous than any snarl could have been. My precious darling, I've just been told a story of a naughty, naughty girl who wouldn't go to bed. His steps were heavy on the floor, and he charged across the room. A thought flashed across Laura's mind. This can only work two ways, and she curled up protectively. Busy, busy, busy. Blue's voice grew excited. He grabbed her arms, wrenching them farther behind her back. The pressure from his grip was intense, and her tendons strained. Her legs were coiled into her stomach, ready to strike. She wanted to wait until he turned to get a shot at tearing his ACL, but the relentless pain of his grip pushed her to act. Her heel separated the cartilage in Blue's left knee. He let loose with a savage cry of pain. Laura found it gratifying, but didn't waste time. Instead, she rolled off the bed and balanced momentarily on one leg, ready to strike another blow. Should I take the extra time to stomp on his throat until he's dead or run? She thought, regaining her balance. Laura saw Blue rolling on the ground and recoiled. She decided that since killing him would require touching him again, it wasn't worth it. Laura crouched low, and with a burst of speed, she was out the door. Her shoulders bumped the walls, coming to an abrupt stop. Laura found herself in a box corridor, the size of an outhouse, with another locked door staring her in the face. She heard Blue gain his feet in the room behind her. He was getting up a lethal head of steam, hobbling for the door. Laura had never been a fan of bullfighting, but the principle lent itself to so many real-world applications. Blue burst through the doorway. A puff of air crossed her face, and she slipped into the outstretched arm, surprising him with no resistance. She planted her left leg as a pivot, and Blue spun around. Now she could use all that extra momentum. Her shoulder pushed into his chest, and they both went flying into the locked outer door. Light washed over them in a flash. It wasn't night. Bright sunlight bathed her face. Her eyes blinked in the midday sun, cut for a moment into geometric patterns falling over her body by fast-moving shadows, bodies. She quickly realized that several men surrounded her. A hood dropped over her head. Multiple sets of hands held her down. Blue's voice had a raspy echo of recent pain. I told you to be ready for this. This one's a wildcat. They picked her up by her bound arms and grappled with her free legs. Laura struggled fiercely. She landed another kick into soft muscle, probably thigh or stomach, and heard the satisfying grunt accompany the concussion. No retaliations. It took just a second for her to realize that the crew was treating her with soft hands because they wanted her looking pretty. No bruises, no cuts, no scrapes. If she'd had full use of her hands, she knew this would be a different fight. Laura had been trained to fight. She freed her left leg, faked a thrust with the foot, and then brought her knee crashing down onto a very square jaw. She felt saliva, and with a little luck, maybe even blood, splatter her stomach. This was turning out better than she'd thought. A totally different voice whispered in her ear as her pants were stripped from her. I'll shove this up you and carry you like a popsicle back to bed if you don't stop struggling. 
She felt the threat of a long, cold, metallic shaft, a baseball bat, against her thigh. Something in the tone told her that the threat was mixed with sick fantasy. He desperately wanted to make good on it. She relaxed. Fucking bitch, was the mainstay of the conversation of the men as they tucked her back into bed. The personal pronoun she had now been replaced with fucking bitch, and a sentence could not be made without it. Surgical straps of woven Kevlar now secured her every limb. Make it tighter. The voice was hushed, but he kept going. I lost a tooth. Laura smiled under the hood. It was the last honest smile she would be able to manage for some time. Chapter 12 Brief Legacy watched Wagner put down the brief and look across the table. Legacy kept himself detached from the emotions building behind her eyes. He had a knack for acting like he truly didn't care about whatever anyone thought of him. It was Oscar-worthy if it was an act. He could see that Wagner clearly was not impressed with what she had read. What dartboard did you use to put together this? She waited for a sign that Legacy was even listening. Report? Crap was the subtext. Legacy sighed with disappointment. They'd given him a knife with a sharp edge on one side and a dull one on the other. He needed her to see the other side of the criminal, and she simply didn't see it. Explaining it was a waste of time, but the young agent demanded it. Let's start with Fag. She rustled to the front page of the document. Wagner read Legacy's breakdown of the vinyl men. They were rebels, but now they're on a tight schedule. The clock plays a very important role to their apparatus. There are no glitches. Nothing is ever late. The organization is precise. No exceptions. So, do we look for people who shouldn't have a schedule, but who adhere to a very tight schedule now? Wagner's tone told him she saw nothing of value in the point. Why not just say they're a highly efficient drill team who have relaxed into the porn industry? The group is on a tight leash, and nothing about their behavior in front of the camera strikes me as anything but professional. They're being forced into a very tight mold. Legacy looked at Wagner's eyes, but they were not receiving. The savant string quartet that Legacy played behind their conversation left a metallic, tortured feeling in the air. So we want to find a guy that looks at his watch all the time. I must admit, I had been expecting brilliant. We want to find a group of guys that look at their watches all of the time. Legacy turned up a screeching violin solo, performed by a person who seemed to think that the bow and a band sander carried the same subtle musical nuances. Now we go from general to ridiculously specific in the span of two paragraphs. I like those two paragraphs. Blue is impotent? Most likely. Do you have a personal relationship with him that I don't know about? And he's had treatment for it. He's far too angry at others for this to be a private matter. His mind jumped forward as he heard his own words. What was he like privately? There was so much public about his persona. What was it like when he was not presenting himself to others? Legacy thought it was much different from what he was showing the world. Legacy. Legacy snapped out of his trance. Wagner wore an annoyed crease on her forehead. A photographer would have loved to capture her face in that moment, he thought. But before he could go off on another tangent, Wagner poured out a frustrated bluster. That's five minutes of my life that you've been wasting staring at the table. I keep thinking that you'll speak soon, 
that it's just a skip in the record, and then you sit there longer. I really should bring some kind of senseless, time-consuming hobby for the wait. Like scrapbooking. It works for millions. Blue's behavior parallels the point brought up by the adult actress we interviewed. He's the one controlling the camera, and he puts it down when he enters the action. Blue has too many control issues for me to believe that this is the first solution for a lifetime of embarrassment in front of women. He has tried everything violent to make himself feel more like a man. He must have tried other things. And he found this. None of this is in your report. None of these justifications or explanations. Why don't you put any of your reasons in the report? He shifted in his seat, looking at the pictures on the wall. The collage of images formed a clear picture somehow, like a mosaic photo mosaic in which a larger image is comprised of thousands of complete smaller images. It seemed like the more he explained the details of his view, the less people understood the larger image he had in his mind. The picture Legacy could see had some solid certainties that were like the lines of the greatest contrast in a developing photo. They might be incomplete, they might be misleading, but the full picture would come in time. Legacy's mind, in this analogy, worked like an old-fashioned flashbulb, a tangled course of razor-thin distinctions. He could not believe that anyone else could sort them out. Thus, putting details of his thought process in the report merely prolonged misunderstanding. Legacy knew the people reading the initial document would not trust his conclusions anyway. I shouldn't have to. I am not here to convince you, Agent. That could have come out better, Legacy admitted to himself. The veteran of over a thousand arguments with chess, he should have recognized the warning signs. After all, he knew how authority affected Wagner, and the mood of the room changed sharply. Wagner steadied herself and then asked, Can you explain the location section? I can. The violins were screeching over Wagner's shoulder. Thank God. How about if we save those thanks for Laura's homecoming? Legacy spoke in the tone of a psychologist for the rest of their conversation. He connected the impossibly obscured dots of his Rorschach test report for Wagner. Her mood brightened considerably as Legacy explained that the contents of the paper were not bold assertions without basis. Rather, they were well-thought-out assertions that obeyed the questionable physics of Legacy's insight. By the time Legacy dismissed her, she wore a look of relief on her face. She said she was going home. But Legacy knew she would pass the added details of his report up the chain of command the second she cleared the doorframe. Chapter 13. The Location Section Director Robert Dorner sat in a dark briefing room. The shadow from a desk lamp cut across his face so that only his mouth and chin were visible to the other members of the committee that he was addressing. Director Dorner was all about straight lines. His suit was pressed at right angles on his strict instructions. His hair stood to attention in a short military cut. And even the surface of his coffee was not disturbed at all when he picked it up with a rock-steady hand. Deputy Wilkes, I see one or two points of interest in this report, but I certainly do not understand why this warrants a top-level meeting. There is nothing in these pages that I would call a solid lead. The frustration of a father crept into his voice as he addressed the assembly. That goes for everyone at the table. If you are all presenting your best men's work, you better think about a career change, gentlemen. The matter is not just about my daughter. 
It is about the security of the greatest nation on this planet, and if that is compromised... Deputy Wilkes cleared his throat. It is Legacy's contention that they are in a remote location. How the hell does that help us? It speaks to the frame of reference of their leader. He feels comfortable in outlying areas. Wilkes took a drink of water. It is also postulated that there is another victim out there, the first victim of this crime. If we can find her, we may have better information to follow. Legacy is convinced that they made their biggest mistakes with her. And will that help me find my daughter in ten hours or less? All of the people in the room understood the time reference. The sites from which the vinyl men were broadcasting had posted that Tracy's ransom had been met ahead of time, and they announced the day and time the next initiation would start. It was the point in the show where the two girls met for a short time. It was a personal and psychological touch that blurred the line between victim and captor. It was the last chance for the outgoing victim to make some money for her ransom, and such had a truly disturbing quality. The previous initiations had been the worst combinations of one of the girls at her most innocent and the other at her most desperate. There were so many ugly moments with this case, but initiation was the only pure act of betrayal. It was the only sex act that all of the previous victims singled out in their reports. It tore them apart to do to another unsuspecting person what had been done to them, to take away the dignity that had been taken away from them. With every fiber of his being, Dorner wanted to be able to save his daughter from the lifelong curtain that that experience would bring with it. I need information that gives results now. You're wasting my time. This is your guy, Wilkes, your brilliant guy. What's his timetable with this? He picked up the report with a sweep of his hands. How can all this lead to an arrest in ten hours? Wilkes shifted in his chair. We're working on a time window of two weeks. He wants to be there when the next girl is abducted, get everyone home safely. Wilkes knew that even with the cushion of his daughter's safety, there were going to be expectations hitting the wall hard. Dorner seethed at the news. Two weeks is acceptable to your man? The officer chimed in from along the table. We're working on a timetable of hours, not days. Dorner stood in a quick motion. That was the message of yesterday's briefing. He made a straight line for the door. He paused after he crossed the threshold and leaned back into the room. It was a startlingly awkward diagonal for the man. Does he believe in his timetable, agent? He asked. Walker nodded. To the best of my knowledge, he believes he can get them at the next abduction. Agent Legacy's reports come directly to my office. Before they're proofread. Before they're typed. A stutter step in the room made him look suddenly older than his years. I don't like what he says, but I recognize that he's telling me what he believes and not what I want to hear. It was like the entire briefing room was empty the second he left. He was a man of great substance, so it was only fitting that he left emptiness behind him. Agent Bailey took a long draw on a gold-tipped cigarette. He crushed it out in the ashtray on his desk, where the remnants of other brands littered the bowl. Every cigarette was a reminder of how unique he was. What a delightful stagnant smell to the room, he thought. His control over his environment was a point of great pride. That reminded him that the phone would be ringing soon. 
His wife always called him before he left the office to remind him to return the baking pan that he took to work that day. Today was a honey walnut creme baked into a vanilla marble cake. He'd eaten half the pan before it became part of the secretary's pool. He wished he'd saved an extra piece for after his last cigarette of the day. The cream would have captured and clotted the nicotine in his throat, and that sounded luxurious, toxic, and delicious. The phone rang. Agent Bailey picked up the phone and cradled it against his ear. He spoke in a lazy tone. Deputy Bailey, he said. An official voice greeted him. This is the special assistant to Director Dorner. Bailey forced down a gulp of saliva and then steadied himself in his reply. You talk like I should know you, son. The director has an unorthodox request. The tremor of his voice had no extra breath for distraction. The cadence was stiff and unquestioning. He wants to set up an internal surveillance. On who? Bailey played the information gap game. He liked forcing people to fill in the blanks, especially when they were reluctant to do so. Agent Legacy. Your office sets him up on a top case, and yet you simply don't trust him. That's an odd dichotomy, wouldn't you say so, special assistant? He waited for the name. Ford. Bailey could practically hear the release valve strain as the pressure built between the man's ears. He doesn't want to disturb the agent's techniques, but he wants information updates on a daily basis. Do you know why we don't do this kind of things to our agents? A silence on the other end of the phone. The assistant was certainly expecting a short conversation with blind compliance. Bailey didn't like matching expectations. They know all our methods, and the smart ones have embedded them into their subconscious, way below the radar of the average agent's ability to deceive it. I am one of the most undeniably average directors in this country, and I am telling you that this tactic will not work on legacy unless you find someone smarter than him to carry it out. You're authorized to go outside the playbook on this one. What kind of promotion can I offer an agent for her cooperation? What do you think it would take? Bailey leaned back in his chair and grinned to himself. He felt as though he was at his best directing terms. Unprecedented meteoric rise in status. That is acceptable, he disconnected. Bailey shifted in his chair, annoyed that there was nothing sticky or sweet to pass his lips because it was looking like a long night on the job. Legacy. Legacy woke from a dreamless sleep at sunrise. He had so much to do after wasting six hours the day before explaining his work. He was six hours further away from finding the director's daughter. He especially liked the midnight call from Wilkes. After hearing the phrase, you need to substantiate, used in conjunction with every conclusion that Legacy had put into his paper, he reached his flashpoint and made his own judgment. He would not be submitting any more reports. He told Wilkes as much before an abrupt disconnection. Legacy had a reputation for icy control in the room, followed by bursts of temper outside. If he had been an operatic tenor, he would have been called a diva. However, as the only man who could perform surgery on the human mind without shedding a drop of blood, he was too unique to fall into a category. It was not quite every mind, actually. Early in Legacy's work with the CIA, he was presented with a child of twelve, daughter of the ambassador to the Baltic Republic of Estonia. She had been delivering her father's coded messages back to the embassy in Russia. 
They were hidden inside her dental work, and she was presumed to be the mule. When they caught her, the State Department brought Legacy in to see how far the damage extended. Legacy entered talks with her to determine if she had any knowledge of the information that she had been transporting. By the end of their first session, he was convinced that she was a pawn, and he even protected her from further questioning with his reputation. He found out years later that she had been the architect of the smuggling operation and was her own dentist. She sent him a Christmas card every year from her dental practice in Maryland. She moved back to the U.S. under diplomatic immunity after communism fell. Legacy remembered the way her face expressed nothing during their conversation. It wasn't like she was covering anything. It was as if there was no actual thought put into any answer. The neutrality of that face stayed in his mind. It wasn't innocence. He knew that even back then. It was a void. Why was he wandering back into those waters? Legacy knew his own mind and had become accustomed to being led by a whim. In his own private philosophy, whim was like a breath of air that became substance when in contact with a mystery ingredient that he called wham. He was waiting for the wham to hit him. The wham came suddenly. The camouflage the vinyl men wore, of course, why didn't he see it before? The full-body vinyl did more than color the perversion. Having a complete second skin was somehow important to the safety of the group. Considering all of the complications of getting the materials and preparations and application before each session, it must have been vital. The process was far too complicated to be simply fetish. There was something identifying on their bodies, or maybe just one of their bodies. Every body part was covered. It had to be important. But what was the catch? How would less than a full body covering give something away? What was he looking for? His breakthrough ran right into a brick wall. Blue had shown himself to be the master of misdirection. He was the kind of person who would go to ridiculous extremes to hide something unfathomably small. He'd start a forest fire to kill one tree. The bodysuits might be painted onto the entire group to hide a single identifying mole on one of them. There were so many alternatives open that Legacy couldn't close in on one for fear of letting a wider range of possibility go unnoticed. Blue knew the angles of incidents. Abduction was experimental science for him. He must be pleased with himself, satisfied, smug, and ready to throw some spice back into his dreary, unchallenged life. He was ready to kill again. Legacy pulled out a folder with a familiar name on the tab. Laura Dorner was a better student than almost anyone in her class. Her studies showed an aptitude for languages. Laura's beauty poured out of her smile like white silk on bronze skin. Men probably looked at her and thought that with a face like that, she didn't need anything more. There was more. She graduated from Columbia at 17 with two majors, ancient literature and pre-law. The picture on the front page of her file was taken at graduation. The blue polyester motorboard fitted below the hairline and the royal blue in her eyes presented a rich, film-worthy chroma. Looking into her eyes, Legacy saw that there was an error in anyone who underestimated her. It might not be enough to match blue on his home turf, but if she saw a weakness, Laura was the kind of person who could exploit it. Legacy looked at the clock. It was almost time for Laura's first broadcast. Everyone had been accelerating their efforts, knowing that something had to happen soon if they had any hope of avoiding it. But he knew it wouldn't. He knew exactly what was happening in the lead-up to the broadcast. He knew everything he could about the rules and the rituals. Yet Blue was still winning. He felt like he might never be closer to Laura, 
than in those moments before the world would become intimate with her. Legacy felt like she might be slipping away. Blue. Blue stood over Laura, using a clear weave baker's brush to spread a thin, glistening layer of oil on her body. There were silver and gold flecks in the oil that made her body sparkle like it was crafted from some streaked hybrid of precious metal. Her eyes popped open, her pupils rolling back momentarily. She was coming out of a sedation. The lids of her eyes felt like shutters stuck down with a dodgy mechanism for raising them. Then they were open again. A drip of blue sweat rolled off his nose and fell onto her forehead. He watched with delight as it made its way down the slope of her brow and mixed with the saline in the corner of her eye. Laura blinked. It was the only part of her body that moved, as she was restrained with a series of crisscrossed thin leather straps against a solid pegboard. It was a process that took Blue hours and left her in exactly the pose that he wanted. His brush reached Laura's lips. Blue traded it for a more precise tip. It's the lips that make the first impression. I say that the lips are an hour and that hair is an afterthought. Let me write that down. Cat's whiskers, you are sassy. How are you feeling? Can I talk to the filthy pervert who runs the place? I'm the janitor. That makes my body the toilet. Your body is pure art. The muscles you have. His hand hovered over her skin, touching nothing, causing anticipation of contact nonetheless. And their tone is incredible. It's why I chose the quartz flex in the oil. It's hard not to make you beautiful, my dear. Compliments are nice, but I prefer the key to this place and a map to the mountains around it. You think you saw mountains? Well, we've moved since then. Why do you think they sedate you every night? Cut the crap, I smell the pine. Blue picked up a can of air freshener and spurted it in the air. Smell anything like this? He made a spsh noise, pulling his lips behind the bottom row of his teeth and opening his mouth like he was swallowing some kind of gourmet dessert. The next thing that came out of her mouth surprised him, like a warm breeze in early spring. How do I get out of this alive? Her eyes evaluated the effect of each word. Who do I have to make like me? Blue was silent. He'd broken through her confidence layer much sooner than he would have expected. She was already prepared to put her life into his hands. It made him suspicious. This was exciting. His first victory and his first challenge coming so early in the game. He knew what she wanted to hear, so he didn't even give her a hint of it. Let's start with me and work our way up. Laura squirmed in disappointment, but then something changed. She warmed to Blue, visibly. You like beauty and form, Blue nodded. I can show you something that you've never seen. I doubt that. Give me an eyebrow pencil and one free hand, and I will make an impression. I can't do that. The whores of ancient Cyrus used to paint fertility symbols on their body. They thought that they would make anyone who looked at their naked form, men or women alike, helpless to their sexual spell. Don't you think you'd like that? Blue's eyes danced under a mask of vinyl. Show me one, and I'll put it on your body. Blue drew the outline of a body on a piece of paper. He loosened the bonds holding down her right arm and handed her the pencil. She put the pencil to paper and drew an intricate symbol, curving up to the edge of her thigh. 
Will that make me look special? Blue duplicated each stroke on Laura, fixated on her skin. It was a beautiful mixture of art and the human form. He wet his lips. It might. Let me keep it symmetrical. He moved the tip of the pencil to the other side of the body. Let me do the eyes. She extended her palm, asking for the eyeliner pencil. I'm not helpless. Blue looked at her, defiant and utterly immobile, pinned against the pegboard. She started to laugh. It was genuine, dripping in irony, a rich tune from a complex soul. Blue wanted to hear it again the moment it stopped. Instead of letting her see how interested he was, he thrust an eyebrow pencil into her hand and turned back towards his artwork. I wasn't expecting all this extra decoration. Do your best to make them pop. We've only got an hour. Legacy burst into the office at nine o'clock, seemingly on a mission. Wagner sulked in the corner, but Legacy barely gave her a glance. He was on to something. Hey, she started the conversation abruptly. I'm having ten of the video frames enlarged. He spoke to the coat rack, the desk, and the walls instead of to his partner. We need to make a chart of the bodies of each of the men. Label spatial quadrants for each square inch of the character in the video. There might be something else. Did you get a call from Wilkes? Wagner replied. Legacy had no patience for games. He called you right after he talked to me. I, Wagner said, got a call from him around 1 a.m., and Wilkes asked you if it was worth it to continue. What did you say? Legacy spoke like he was reading from a transcript. There was no pause between the words for thought or objection. I said I thought it was worth it. Now you're in the boat, too. Legacy let that sink in for a moment. Wagner responded, Why are you picking out video frames? Legacy explained. The lights are halogen, three paired clusters with 2,400-watt bulbs in each, bright enough for mesh, linen, and even a thin membrane to bleed light through. You saw beneath their costumes? I detected an uneven shading pattern beneath the colored layer, the same place on every one of them. Scars? I doubt it. Uniform length and width, and the pattern indicates a design. He led her along, and she followed. Tattoos. She nodded her head. How did you get there? Legacy stopped staring at the pictures on the wall and beamed a proud look at the agent. That's the best question you've asked since coming here. I am a prodigy, she smirked, evidently coming out of her funk. There was a fingerprint on the outside of a photo album that was delivered to my door. It belonged to the first victim, Kelly. The first victim we know of, Wagner corrected. Exactly. Legacy walked over to the wall, covered in photos, and pressed his own finger on one of the enlarged frames. It left a meaty print. I noticed the print because it was a single smudge of something that looked like motor oil. Kelly was into motorbikes. She practiced with a Harley to ride in her homecoming parade. The abductors were still pretty new to the business when they took her, and they went after a familiar image. They took a girl on a bike. We're looking for a group of riders, and they all have tattoos on their forearms that are approximately seven inches of a jagged design. They needed to cover their tracks, and so they used fetish as their camouflage. Wagner looked unimpressed. You're excited about this? Legacy thought that she'd be on the phone immediately. Do you really think a tattoo is going to include names and addresses? Legacy shook his head. Then I'm going to the bathroom. The bathroom stall door shut behind Wagner, and her phone was in her hand. Bailey here.